This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, November 22nd. Today, a Uyghur woman's journey from a Chinese internment camp to the suburbs of Virginia and the sound of the Nuremberg trials. So I covered China for many years. I was based in Beijing for The Post and based in Hong Kong before that. And since 2009, the situation for the Uyghurs has been getting progressively worse and worse and worse. And over the last three years, it's gotten really bad. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post. She's talking about the Uyghurs, a Muslim minority in China. They have been systematically targeted by the Chinese government in an effort to make them more like the majority Han population. Roughly three years ago, China started building this network of, you know, quote-unquote, re-education camps, basically mass interning the Turkic Muslim population. And we've been reporting this story from within China, from Kazakhstan, but it's extremely rare to actually meet people who've gotten from the camps all the way to the United States. So a few months ago, a Uyghur connection of mine put me in touch with this family, and I was, I was really surprised that they're here at all. So tell me about this family that you met and how they became victims of that campaign. So this is a family that lives in the regional capital. It's a city called Urumqi. The woman's name is Zumrat, and her husband's name is Imran, and he's Pakistani. Um, He's a trader. He does business between Pakistan and China, and they met there many years ago. And they have three kids. And things really took a turn for the worse for them in March of 2018. So for Zumrat, it all started with a phone call from the police. Getting a call from the police, if you live in that area, does not mean good things. Uh, So they bring her into the police station. She says she was taken down to a, a basement room. It was cold. And what were they asking her about, or why were they targeting her? The interrogators seemed to be very focused on the fact that she had foreign connections. And, you know, she said, well, my husband's Pakistani, he's a traitor. Of course there's, you know, in-laws are in my phone, and of course we do business. But this is part of a broader pattern of, of people there with any ties abroad to neighboring countries, through business, being targeted and viewed with suspicion. And so after they started questioning her, what happened then? So she's there for 24 hours, as she remembers it. She's then transferred. She said she was taken hooded, shackled to what she later learns is a cell. And she just remembers being put in and describing a floor so thick with women that she couldn't lie down. And she wakes up in the morning and, you know, confirms that she's in what is essentially a, an off-books prison detention center internment camp. Mm-hmm. 
So her husband, because he's a foreign national, had been pressing, you know, consular officials to get her out. So she's in there, day 61, day 62. She's led to a different part of the facility, and her husband's there, and he takes her home. And what happened after that? They go back to their life in the capital. Uh, She's reunited with her kids, but she still doesn't really feel free. And she's living with the knowledge that if she does anything that's viewed as suspicious, whatever that might be, she could get sent back. Sometime after she was released, local officials started coming to her about the fact that she had three children. So um, why were they concerned with the fact that she had three children? So China has strict controls on population. And for many years, if you are a member of certain um, minority groups, instead of having one child under the one-child policy, you could have two. And Zimrat had three children. So they ended up coming to her and saying, listen, well, you violated the policy, and we're here to tell you the government will be providing you with a complimentary sterilization. What? Exactly. She didn't want it. She dreamed of having a fourth child. She wanted another boy but she didn't feel like she could say no. So she did it. She did it. She was very matter-of-fact describing, you know, an official came to my house and with some other women, I went to the hospital and I went into the room and they gave me a general anesthetic. But when she came to describe um, what that meant for her and her her family in the future, uh, she wept. So at that point, was that when she and her husband decided they can't be there anymore? So it's really hard for Uyghurs to get out of China right now. I've been covering this for many years, and I've still interviewed very few people who have been in the camps and are now outside. But this family was unique because her husband was Pakistani. And also unique because as relatively wealthy traders, they had a few years back obtained tourist visas to come to the United States. They wanted to take a family holiday. So after the sterilization, they started campaigning uh, with local officials to let them out of the country. They said, listen, my husband's father is ill. Please let us go. Please be compassionate. We'll definitely come back. We promise to be back. We promise to be back. We promise to be back. And for whatever reason, the local official agreed. And so they left. They boarded a flight in Urumqi for Islamabad, and they made their way through the airport, and they couldn't believe it, and they took off. They get to Pakistan, and suddenly they're outside of China's censored internet. They're watching YouTube videos, and they're realizing the full extent of what was happening in China, the More than a million people are in detention, according to U.S. and U.N. estimates. And they're realizing, wow, we we really can't go back. But they're also realizing if we don't go back, they're probably going to go after our family. So why didn't they end up just deciding to live in Pakistan? So they start hearing stories about, you know, weaker people who fled to Pakistan and are getting forcibly deported. They realize it's going to take a long time for Zimrat to get Pakistani citizenship, to naturalize there. And they basically decide, we can't stick around, you know, we're going to get sent back to China. So they knew that they could get to the United States, unlike most people. They don't let you get on a plane if you don't have a visa. So they decide to roll the dice, and they got on a flight and landed at Dulles Airport. And were they worried at all about the fact that if the Chinese government knew that they had 
essentially lied about their promise to return, that it could have repercussions for other members of their family? They were terrified just after they overstayed the date of their return. Zumrat got messages on her phone. Uh, they were from her brother. And in a series of, of desperate messages, he says, you know, where are you? Why aren't you calling me back? You know, so-and-so went to interrogate our father. It was devastating for them. She knew, you know, and she had her brother's voice on a voice message saying, you know, we're in trouble, they're coming for us. She also knew that she had three kids with her and that if she went back, she would certainly be going back to detention, if not prison, and that there could be trouble for her husband and her kids as well. So when was it that they first got here and how long have they been here now? They got here in April. So it's been a few months. They had their first American summer while they sort of got used to living in suburban Virginia and developed a plan. We're standing outside the mosque in the Virginia suburbs and it's just rained. You can hear the crickets. And their two daughters, 11 and 6. <laughs> Chips, hamburger. She's selling hamburgers at her imaginary store. The community helped them find a home to rent. They started settling in and they filed for asylum. And what are the chances that that asylum petition will be successful? So it's really hard to say. Various U.S. government agencies have condemned the camps. State Department, Pentagon, uh, so many people have said, you know, what China's doing is a travesty. At the same time, the Trump administration has generally tightened controls on refugees and asylum seekers. And so I can imagine that maybe the reason why they wanted to talk publicly about their experience and about the fact that they were able to escape from China is, is partially to make the case for why they should be able to stay in the U.S. because things were so bad for them there. Well, the, the decision to speak out for them was excruciating. As they sort of started to settle into life in the United States and as they started to meet with members of the Uyghur diaspora here, people warned them, if you do this, there will be consequences. And yet they've still been pretty public about, about their experiences. You know, for about a month, they said, we don't want to do the story. We changed our mind. We're too terrified. And then over the summer, they changed their mind. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Ambassador Gingrich. Uh, Archbishop Her case caught the attention of the State Department, and she was actually mentioned in a speech by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Really? He mentioned her and her family in that speech? Right. He gave a speech on uh, religious freedom. One of them was a woman named Zumrat Darwut. She was shackled, interrogated, and taken to an internment camp where she was forced to recite Chinese propaganda and beaten for giving an ailing fellow prisoner her food. All of this for the crime of being Muslim. There was an immediate reaction from the Chinese side. There was an article in one of the party-controlled news outlets condemning what Pompeo had said. Uh, as part of that, they had found a video, which they said was made by Zumrat's brother. 
in which he condemned his sister's testimony and also condemned directly Mike Pompeo for his speech. Zumrat and her family believe the brother was coerced into uh, this testimony. Does Zumrat feel like she has kind of a responsibility to, to talk about the things that happened to her just because it is so rare for someone who has been to the places that she's been and seen the things that she's seen for them to have gotten to the U.S. and gotten to safety? That's exactly how she feels, and that's why she decided to tell her story. As she went back and forth over the summer about whether or not to go ahead with the story, you know, she was weighing her responsibility um, to her family and then this sense that she'd had when she was in detention of why isn't anyone doing anything about this? Why isn't anyone speaking out? And she said that's why she ultimately decided to tell her story. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. And now one more thing from reporter Michael Ruain about recordings from the Nuremberg trials where Nazi officials were prosecuted after World War II. You have testified that uh, many of the execution orders were signed by Mueller. Is that correct? The recordings were recently digitized and transferred from the International Court of Justice to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And a warning, the descriptions you're about to hear are graphic. You hear in these audio recordings the actual words of witnesses and defendants you know, you hear crimes described. You hear uh, Hans Koppelin, uh, the Norwegian, describing his torture at the hands of the Gestapo, where he was beaten and had pins driven under his fingernails and was tortured brutally. But uh, I came back to life again by the smelling of uh, burnt, burnt meat. And then one of the Gestapo agents was standing with a little sort of a lamp burning me under my feet. And uh, you hear an American lawyer read Rudolf Haas's affidavit. He was the commandant at Auschwitz. And you hear him describe how he executed the mass murder of people with great efficiency. I personally supervised executions at Auschwitz until the 1st of December, 43. And no, by How he murdered people in huge numbers, 200,000 people murdered, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of others who died of disease. He describes going to Treblinka, which was another concentration camp, and seeing how they did their job and realizing that they were inefficient. 
that he could do a much better job by building bigger gas chambers. And instead of using carbon monoxide to kill people, he realized that he could use this poison Zyklon B, which was much more effective. It took from three to 15 minutes to kill the people in the death chamber, depending upon climatic conditions. We knew when the people were dead because their screaming stopped. He then describes how long they would wait before they took the bodies out, how they would uh, remove gold fillings in teeth and jewelry. And at the end of his testimony, the American lawyer who's reading his affidavit says, is that accurate? And he says in German, yes. Is that all true and correct, witness? There was. We've all read about these horrors, but to hear it from the perpetrators themselves and the eyewitnesses is really stunning. I think it's important to remember this time in history because it proves that we're imperfect beings and we're capable of doing horrible things to each other. The audios also let you listen to this attempt at prosecuting such crimes. The world did recognize this as, as a horror and did recognize it as a crime that needed to be prosecuted. And you hear this unfold as you listen to these audios. Michael Ruane writes about history for The Post. These recordings come from a collection of 250,000 documents, along with films and almost 800 hours of audio from the Nuremberg Trials. To read Michael's story about the collection, go to postreports.com. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. We've started a Facebook group for Post Reports listeners. It's a place for fans of the show to chat with us, share their ideas or feedback, and talk about what's going on in the news. Find a link at postreports.com or go to facebook.com slash groups slash postreports. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Rennie Spernovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org.